0: As we already mentioned, others mentioned already, today is the last week of our sermon series through 2 Thessalonians, and I really like Jesse's summary. I want to give you a few more particulars in terms of what Paul has been doing in the letter. Paul begins the letter by encouraging his his readers who are Christians knowing that they are dealing with persecution for their faith in Jesus. He corrects some of the false teaching about Jesus' second coming, what Jesse referred to as the apocalypse. He encourages the Thessalonian Christians to stand firm in their faith in Jesus. And then Paul asks them to pray for the spread of the good news of the gospel. That's what he's done so far. It's a pretty short letter, and it really was a letter when it was first given. It had no chapters and verses or anything. But in this last portion of the letter, Paul ends with a rebuke for some of the Christians. So he's going to correct them. He gives a command and an encouragement to others. So remain seated and let's read together our verses for today. Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 15. And let's read together from the screen. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, first notice that as Paul is giving this command in verse 6, he gives it to the Christians in the name of Jesus, which means he's giving it with the authority of Jesus. Paul is not sharing his opinion. This is God's command. And the command is a part of Christian's Caring for other Christians, and we'll be seeing how it is we're to do that in just a bit. And the command relates to the rebuke. So let's look at that rebuke. Paul addresses his rebuke or his correction to those Christians who are, quote, walking in idleness. Now, that word walking doesn't mean picking up your feet and going from one place to another, it means, it's another way to say, living. So it refers to their current pattern of life. This is the way the people are living. They are not working to support themselves. In fact, that's what he means when he says idleness. Some of the Christians there in Thessalonica are not working for a living. And so most likely, the idle people are getting food, maybe even rent money, from other people, possibly other Christians. What this means is that the idle people are being an unnecessary burden on other people. But it turns out their idleness involves more than just not working for a living. They're also busybodies. Notice how he said it. You're not busy at work, you're busybodies. This means they're gossips and they're bothering the people who are working for a living. So let's just talk about gossip for just a minute because we don't talk about it that often in the church, not from the pulpit. Gossip destroys relationships. If you put up the slide. Gossip is when I talk to you about another person, a third person, and one or both of us are not part of the problem or part of the solution. Or in other words, either you or I or both of us are not involved in the situation, but we're talking about it. Now, gossip is tempting because it feeds our selfishness and it feeds our self-importance. You see, gossip is usually about somebody else's failure. And if you or I have not failed that way lately (laughs) or have not failed that badly lately, we can feel better about ourselves when we compare ourselves to them. But both idleness and being a busybody are sin because they are not in line with God's character. They're sin because they're not in line with God's character. Now, we are not told the specifics of the circumstances or the motivations of the people who weren't working. So we don't know why. We don't know any of the details, though we would like to know, right? Yes, we would. But God very deliberately told us, no. No, all I'm going to tell you is that they're not working. But there are a couple of references in 1 Thessalonians, the first letter, which we think was written just several weeks, maybe a couple of months before this letter. And in there, there are some references that point to the problem of idleness. So it looks like this idleness has been going on for a while. But... The sin of laziness is nothing new. It was it's addressed a lot in the book of Proverbs, which is in the Old Testament. It's been around ever since Adam and Eve and the brokenness and selfishness that comes from our disobedience to God. But let me add here that God that in the in the Bible God makes a distinction between a person who is capable of working but chooses not to and the person who is not able to work. And it's very clear from Paul's words that the Christians he is writing to and rebuking, correcting, are capable of work, but for some reason, which we are not told, are not at the moment working. Well, if a person is unable to work or adequately provide for themselves because of either physical or mental disability, then first, what you see in the Bible, is that the families are called to take care of them. In fact, in the New Testament, in other parts, Paul talks to the church about widows and says, look, if the widow has children, grown children, that can care for her, let them care for her. Let family take care of the, orphan, of the widow. But if the widow has no children, if there is no relatives to care for them, then church, you step up and you care for them. And then he New Testament also goes on to talk about orphans, who by definition don't have any family, and then people without food or shelter, people who for at least a temporary period of time are are not able to provide for themselves. And some people have said, Christians have said, in the church, well, isn't that why we have welfare? Well, look at your history. In the United States, a national government welfare program only began in 1935. Before that, so for 300 years in the United States, for many hundreds of years before that in other countries that that were affected by Christianity, it was the church and individuals who helped other people. Now let's come back to Paul's command in verse 6. Paul's command in verse 6 is to the working Christians, and he says to keep away... I'm putting that in quotes from the idle Christians. Another word for this keeping away from is to shun. But biblical shunning is different than shunning as it has been practiced in the past and even a form of it today. You see, shunning has been practiced in some religious groups, including by Christian groups. But biblical shunning isn't the same. We have a form of it today. It's called our cancel culture, okay, in our culture today, okay? But that's not the same as biblical shunning, and neither is how the shunning was done in the past. You see, to cancel somebody is to ignore them and to even pretend they don't exist or they do not matter. Just kind of ignore them. That's a piece of the shunning. But the shunning, as it was practiced by some groups, did that kind of ignoring, but also, there was a way of deliberately trying to shame the other person. You see them, and you walk across the side, other side of the street. You see them, you don't speak to them, but you speak about them, even in their own presence, about their failure. The goal there with that kind of shunning is to shame. That's not the goal with what Paul is talking about. You see biblical shunning first does not mean no contact at all. You don't ever t- talk to the person again until they come and beg for forgiveness. What it does mean on the one hand is that you do not treat the person and the situation as if everything is okay and normal. You don't. You're you're not going to treat them as if everything is fine though, again, that's actually a movement today as well. Almost almost anything is acceptable. But you're not going to try to shame them. You're going to pray that that person is convicted of their sin, and if there's opportunity, you're going to remind them of God's forgiveness. You're going to encourage them to take God's forgiveness and to align themselves back up again with, with God's ways because, you see, the goal of biblical shunning And in verse 15 of the warning is to motivate the person to get right with God and to get right with people around them. The goal of this, if you choose to go this route, and, and we're going to talk about another way that God gives us as well in just a second. So understood, if you understand it properly, this keeping away is related to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, which we're going to look at in a second, because both are a form of rescue. So Matthew 18, 15 says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So notice it's between you and him alone. There's not going to be any kind of gossip going on. You're not talking to other people about what he's done. You're going to go to him, and the whole goal is in confronting him, because that's what you're doing in Matthew 18. You're confronting him. The goal is to gain your brother, is to rescue them. So you've got two methods. Second Thessalonians, Paul is saying, keep away from him. Don't, tr- don't let him think that he can just, this person, he or she, can just go on with life as usual while they're clearly in sin. Don't let them think everything is, is good and normal, but let them know you care. And talk to them if they're willing to listen about getting right with God. And the goal of that and Matthew 18, which is confronting, is restoration. Now, one of the dangers of shunning is comparing yourself with that person and thinking that you're better than them because you don't struggle with that particular sin or you don't struggle as bad. You see, our natural selfishness and self-righteousness moves us in that direction. But God, I like to say, levels the field. He says, it's real simple. You're all guilty. Everybody. We're all guilty before God and equally deserving of condemnation. And so we're all needing his mercy. Let's look at another passage that talks about this aspect of things. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So let's look at some of these words. He says, brothers, he's talking to Christians. If another Christian is caught in a transgression. Now here's the thing. Sin is deceitful. Even when you and I deliberately choose to disobey God, so often we think, hey, I'm in control. It's like the Lay's potato chip. I can just have one. I can do this thing just one time, and then I can ask God's forgiveness and everything will be great. We think we're in control, but we're not. We're like the fish who sees the worm. Oh, tasty, tasty worm. And we ignore the hook. But we get hooked with it, so in a sense, the sinner who deliberately chose willingly, knowingly chose to disobey God and chase that desire is caught. You who are spiritual doesn't mean you're better, just means at the moment you're right with God, and you can see clearly because you can see the situation through the lens of God's word, and you see this other person is caught. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because God is gentle with us. But then notice the the warning. Keep watch on yourself. Why? Because of the temptation, because of selfishness, self-righteousness, to think, I am so glad I am not like that person. I am so glad I didn't fall that way. I wouldn't ever do that. Oh, we're going to talk about that a little more in a minute. I bet you can't wait. And then he also says, bear one another's burdens. Not only do we get caught, but it's almost like a pack. And and every time we sin, we're throwing a rock in the pack. And it's just getting heavier and heavier. And he says, help this person. So keep watch on yourself. Do you get the sense of what's going on here? This is still talking about rescue. But it's talking about how we ought to go about it. To recognize, I am just as capable as this person of whatever sin there is. Okay, we're not in control. We don't have it all together. Then at verse 6, end of verse 6, you see that Paul apparently taught on this topic of working to support yourself and your family when he was in Thessalonica. So it wasn't as if they'd never heard anything about it. They'd been taught, but just like you and I, when we decide... This desire is more important than anything else. We ignore other things. Well, not only did Paul teach on it, but when you look at the Bible, you see that God himself gave us an example of working when he created the world in six days. In fact, one of the Ten Commandments in it, when he talks about keeping the Sabbath, he makes reference to God taking six days to create the world. And he says, so you work six days and you rest on the seventh. But think about this. Did it really take God six days because that's as fast as he could make everything? No. No. He wasn't huffing and puffing when he was all done on day six. Man, I need a break. No. What did he do? He created everything just by speaking. He is so powerful, he could have said, let everything be. And would have been. Everything. The stars, the earth, the moon. The planets, the animals, people, everything could have all been there one time. Why did he take six days? To give us an example of working, to work six days and rest the seventh. But not only that, God commissioned mankind to work. When he told Adam, tend the garden. When he commanded Adam and Eve, subdue the earth. This was all while everything was still perfect. So, human beings were not designed to lay around all day and do nothing. And contrary to what some people say, work was not part of the curse. It was not. Okay? But the curse does affect work. It sure makes it harder. Okay? But work was not part of the curse. When you and I work, we're copying God, because that's what God did and what God is doing today. He's still working, holding everything together, ruling all that he's doing. So in verse 10, Paul reminds them of the command he gave them when he was with them. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So he does it in a double negative. Let's put it in the positive. Work so you can live. That's the command. And some people are ignoring that for a time. But not only do we have God's example in the Old Testament, in verses 7 and 8, Paul reminds the Christians there of his example of working to support himself and those others on his team. And he first does it in verse 7 with a couple of negatives. He says, first, I was not idle. I was not sitting around refusing to work. Second, he said, I did not eat without paying for the food that I was given. I paid for it. And then he turns around to the positive. I worked night and day, which I think is a way of saying that he worked diligently. He worked. Now, he doesn't address it here, but Paul working there in Thessalonica to support himself does not in any way negate, cancel the biblical directive for church members to support pastors and other staff, church staff. In fact, what he says is, Paul says, I could have claimed this right, and it was something that was already there in their culture, already in the church. I could have claimed the right for you to support me while I was teaching you, but I chose not to. Well, let me mention another situation that's common today in smaller churches. And that's bivocational pastors. These are people that have... Bivocational means they have two jobs. They are pastors of a church that doesn't have enough members or enough income to fully support the pastor and his family. And so the pastor works part time or full time at some other job. He preaches on Sunday and he pastors the congregation. And the congregation gives him what they can. Now, that situation where he has to work might be at another job, might be temporary, it might be long term. I know of three pastors that were, bi- that were bivocational. One still is. And in the one case, if he had stayed at the church, he would have had to stay bivocational because it was that small of a congregation. One of those three is a relative of mine. Okay, so that's something that is still around today. Let's look back at Paul. Not only does he command them to work, not only does he give himself as an example but he also tells the Thessalonians to imitate him. Now, Paul isn't being proud when he does that. He doesn't say, look how great I am. Look how good of a job I am doing at being a Christian. No, but he still says, imitate him. So you and I can imitate other Christians, and this will happen. If there are questions in your mind about something that that person does, check scripture and seek God's guidance. Now, why do I say that? Because none of us are perfect. So you don't want to copy everything the person does. You want to copy what matches. It's kind of like what Paul says in another place, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look how other people are living the Christian life and imitate that. So here's a good goal for all of us. We should all desire to be worthy of imitation. It should be a goal for us, to be worthy of imitation. But all of you that are parents already know this. For better or worse, your children do imitate you. Okay? for Actually, for better and for worse. Okay? They imitate you, and I don't know about you, but I've prayed multiple times, God, would you protect my children okay, from imitating my failures, my weaknesses, my bad ways of doing things, my selfishness. Protect them from that, please. I've already lived a life where I've reaped the consequences enough, consequences of that selfishness. I don't want them to have to go through that. So we want to be worthy of imitation. We know that other people, including our children, do imitate us. We want to be worthy. Then in verse 12, Paul gives a command and an encouragement to the idol, to the people who are not working. First, he says, work. Support yourself and your family. Get a job. But then he says, work quietly. That means do not be a busybody and do not be a gossip. Drop that off. And in Ephesians 4, Paul gives a similar command to the person who used to steal. He says, to the one who steals, do not steal anymore. But he doesn't stop there. He says, work. But then he adds another reason, so that you can share. You see, the opposite of stealing isn't working. The opposite of stealing is sharing. Because the goal isn't just a change in behavior. It's a change in heart. It's a change in motivation. You can see the motivation for the person who's stealing. You can see the motivation for the person who could work but chooses not to. I want to please myself. To work so you can share is to have a totally different motivation. And then in verse 13, Paul gives the encouragement to those who are working. He says, do not grow weary in doing good. Yeah, I can see this two ways. First, Don't grow weary in working. Because I don't know about you, but there have been times, I know plenty of people who worked very hard at not working, at work. Um, And there were times that I got jealous. Look, they figured out the system. They, they, They know how to do as little as possible and still get paid the same as I'm getting paid. What's the deal here? But then you realize their choice comes with baggage. It comes with consequences, just like mine does. If, if you and I are choosing to work and work diligently like we're trying to please God, yes, it's going to take effort and we're going to sacrifice, but there's the well done that comes. And there's the other benefits that come at times. And there's a consequence for only trying to do just enough to get by as well. And so on the one hand, I think Paul is saying to those Christians who are working, don't grow weary in working. But I think there's another piece to it. I think he's also saying, do not grow weary in caring for others because he's given them a command to care about those Christians who aren't working. Okay? Whether it's by keeping away from them or confronting them, the whole goal there is to care for those other people. I believe he's saying, don't go weary, grow weary in that either because you know what? You and I have no control whatsoever. But any other person who is caught in a sin, whether it's a s- small one or a big one, as to when they're going to change. But God's command to us is, is the same. Care for them. Pray for them. Look for opportunities to encourage them. And wait and see what God is going to do. Now, let me finish by kind of backing a back away from the idleness and gossip to give you two general principles that I think fit here. General principle number one are multiple ways that you and I distort and misuse God's design, multiple ways that you and I break God's law. We're human beings, and as human beings we have a high degree of creativity, and we can take anything good that God has made and mess it up. Anything. So this general principle... That we've been talking about about the working about obeying god applies to all kinds of areas of life caring for others whether it's not letting them live life as normal or confronting them applies as well because here's something we know god allows all christians at times to follow our own sinful selfish desires and he does so for his own purposes now, that's a true statement, but let's go just a little bit deeper and look at the question of why. Why does God do that? Have you ever asked God this question? And usually you and I are a little bit upset when we ask it. God, why didn't you keep me from sinning that way? You could have, so why didn't you? And so we get angry with God. God, why didn't you protect me from myself? If you loved me, you would. You can hear the pout. Okay? It's in there. Here's one reason I believe that God lets us chase after our own desires and ignore God and walk into sin. One, to humble us. I think to remind us that if I'm capable of that sin, I'm capable of just about any sin. Doesn't matter how big. I could go there. And it's only God's mercy and his kindness that keeps me from going there because it isn't my strength of character that can do it. No, it's what God does. And so one reason I believe that God lets us walk into these things is one, to humble us. And the second, I think, is to let us see the wickedness and the evil of our sin. That it's not a small thing. It's not just a little white lie. It's not just a little bending of the truth. It's not just a little unkindness. It's the darkest, dirtiest. I don't, I don't know about you. I know Jesse liked the uh, the trilogy. Um, Whatchamadiddle? Tell me the name. Lord of the Rings. Okay. Whoever came up with the idea for those orcs and goblins, those were some of the ugliest, slimiest, ugliest creatures you could imagine okay that's sin on display it is brokenness and evil and wickedness on display as you look at them and that's what's in us and that's what god forgives and he wants us at times to remember how ugly it looks so he lets us walk into it because and we do because we're all blind at times to the right way to live as Christians. So here's, there are many, many consequences, results we could talk about, but I just want to talk about one. One of the results means that the church is not a place where people have it all together. It's not a, Church is not a place for people who have it all together because there isn't anybody. Okay? And so don't fake it. That's something as Christians we need to remember. Don't fake it. It was a big turning point in my life, being here in the church, being encouraged after years, and somebody came by and said, Mark, how are you doing today? And usually my answer was fine, which doesn't really tell you much. Now, on the flip side, if somebody asks you how you're doing at church on Sunday, that doesn't mean you immediately just dump everything, all your sins that you've done. Okay? It has to be the right person. But I knew this person, and I knew they really meant what they asked. And so I, I said, I'm struggling today. And so they pulled me off into an empty room and said, okay, can I pray for you? And you know what? That was exactly what I needed right there, was to be able to be honest and not go into any detail but say, I'm struggling right now. And they prayed for me, and that made such a difference because that's what the church is about. Is God using people like you and me to help other people like you and me when we 're struggling like that here 's general principle number two: God does not tell us to be the sin police okay to look for other people 's sin. We see enough of it already without even trying it 's already there on display, including our own and it 's easy to kind of be the sin police and then do what uh, the 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 misshapen form of what Paul was talking about distance ourselves from those sinners. In a sense, that's kind of the whole philo- major part of the philosophy of the Pharisees. They thought, I'm a good person because I have all these rules and I'm keeping all these rules pretty well, at least 85%. And here are all these people not even trying. Well, they're dirty, they're contaminated, so I'm going to keep my distance. Well, if you and I isolate ourselves from every other person who sins, we're going to end up all alone And we're still dealing with a sinner ourselves, okay? I remember reading, and I had not heard this until I was in seminary and reading church history, about the early Christian monastics. This is before there were monasteries. So here's what was going on in the early church. There were about 300 years of persecution. Came off and on, and after those 300 years... Christianity first was tolerated, meaning it became legal and there was no more persecution. And then Christianity became the favored religion of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? It happened because the Roman Emperor, Constantine, gave money and buildings to the Christian church in various cities. And it became fashionable for people to go to the Christian church. And so the result was you've got all these crowds and crowds of Romans that went to the Christian church who had no desire to learn anything about Jesus or Christianity. They went because it was the end thing to do. Now imagine that you're one of those Christians in those churches. You're very aware of the 300 years of persecution. In fact, you probably know somebody who died in the Colosseum or somewhere else by the Romans' hand. Or another Christian who lost their home and their job, everything, became totally destitute because the government took it because they were Christian. And now Christianity has become tolerated. And now you have all these people who have no interest in the Christian church coming to your church. And so some of those Christians responded to those people, those contaminated people, By moving out into the country where they could live by themselves, dedicate their lives to God, and remove themselves from the contamination. They had this habit of writing in journals, and some of those journals remain. And what we find out is they brought their trouble with them. Yes, they separated themselves from those contaminated people, but they brought one contaminated person with them, themselves. And so they still had to deal with sin. So it doesn't work to identify those bad people and say, I'm going to stay away. Let me finish with this. Our verses today remind me of our church motto. It's three words, side by side. And I use that to remind myself of three things. That we're called by God to live side by side with Jesus every day. Reading his word, talking to him, listening to him, and then live side by side, helping others. That's what Paul was telling the Christians at Thessalonica to do for the, those Christians who at the time had chosen not to work, help them, in this case not with money, encourage them to work, encourage them to obey God, and then side by side being helped by others. Those Christians who, for whatever wrong reason, had chosen not to work but could, needed to be brought back, needed to be rescued from themselves. They needed to be helped. And that's what God calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for loving us and loving us first. We thank you for these reminders. We thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would give us hearts that want to hear you, that want to follow you, that want to obey you, Lord, as uh, as was already said, you call us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as we love ourselves. Lord, work in us that we will do that, not just today, but every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with a song. The song we're going to sing is by... Keith and Kristen Getty, Uh, it's called Before You I Kneel, and it's something they call the Worker's Hymn, which I think is very appropriate. So please stand and let's worship our Lord together.